18. We'll touch on that a little bit, uh, but it really will not be the core of our teaching today. And uh, it's, it's summertime, and that typically means vacations and visitors. And so we're so glad if you are new to our congregation, if you're here with us today, but perhaps again this week, uh, just a word of explanation. We typically walk through uh, scriptures, uh, various books of the Bible, start to finish, verse by verse. That's our typical practice here at Redeemer. And for this summer, we're doing something new, something different, a little bit of a, a topical study. We've been looking at different topics uh, and seeing what God's word, his wisdom in the Proverbs has to say about those topics. Well, this week, uh, it seemed good to me after uh, having a discussion last week, a good uh, discussion uh, about debt and usury and some of the uh, involved issues in our congregational meeting, it seemed good to me uh, to change the order that I was going to approach some of our topics and to preach this week on God's wisdom for wealth. Now, if you were here for our conversation last week, I hope you already saw the response from the session because this is not going to be that. We're not, I'm not going to drill down into those particular issues, uh, but we are simply going to look generally at what God's word has to say about wealth. And so we'll see some of that today. And uh, I've listed a number of Proverbs there. Uh, this really is just the beginning. If you're familiar with the Proverbs, uh, wealth is one of the most prominent topics in the Proverbs. And so we're just beginning uh, to scratch the surface here. But we have uh, God's wisdom today in Proverbs 3, 10, 11, 15, 22, and 23. Before we turn to read these texts, please join me in prayer, seeking the Lord's blessing upon our study together. Let's pray. Oh, gracious and righteous Lord, we thank you that you are the one from whom all blessings flow. You're the one who makes rich and the one who makes poor, who brings to life and brings to death the one who brings uh, calamity, and the one who brings blessing. And so, O oh Lord, always in your hands, we pray that you would lead us by your Spirit uh, to see what you have for us here, to see some of your wisdom from your word, that we would honor you with our wealth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, hear now God's wisdom for wealth as we find it in the Proverbs. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light upon it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. In 1921, a Swiss psychiatrist by the name of Hermann Rorschach introduced a new test to the world. It was a test that was intended, he, he said, 
to diagnose uh, conditions like schizophrenia, other mental disorders. You've probably never taken his Rorschach test, but you're familiar with the idea. You've seen it on television. You've seen it in, in movies somewhere. It consists of a psychiatrist uh, showing pictures, images, of splotches, really, of ink on a white background to the patient, uh, and then recording whatever it is that the patient uh, says they see in that image. It's a little bit like laying on your back in a field and looking up at the clouds, and uh, that looks like a bunny, and maybe that's a fire truck, except that the splotches that Rorschach drew, the, the official Rorschach test, by the way, has 10 official ink blots, all drawn by Rorschach himself, intended to be uh, intentionally ambiguous. They're not supposed to look like any one thing, but they could look like a few different things. And the point of the test is, is not exactly to get the person to say the right answer, because they're splotches. There, there's no right answer. But the idea is to record uh, patterns of thinking and patterns of expression. And that's where the controversy comes in to this Rorschach test. Because there's no right answer, uh, many psychiatrists have abandoned it, thinking that it's too subjective. It's too open to interpretation. In fact, that's the whole point of the test, that, uh, that there, it isn't so much about the pictures as it is about the perception. It all comes down to the individual and how they express what they see in front of them. Now, when we open the Proverbs and we begin to look for wisdom concerning wealth, I think there is a parallel. There's a parallel with the way that Proverbs treats the issue of wealth, or perhaps there is a parallel with the way that we treat the way the Proverbs treat the issue of wealth. Because it's not that when we open God's word, it gives us intentionally ambiguous meanings or wisdom that we scratch our heads and go, yeah, I'm not, I don't know, it, it could, I don't know, it could go either way. The point is not that, that God's word is intentionally ambiguous. No, Proverbs gives us objective divine truth for dealing with possessions, but the fact is that there are so many Proverbs about possessions that we individually, as we interact with God's word, will naturally tend to gravitate towards some and away from others. Even the fact that I have listed these Proverbs for you today and not some others may make you uh, think that uh, perhaps you can psychoanalyze the pastor this week. Well, what, what was he thinking? What was going through his mind when he chose these and, and not some other ones? And that's the way that we tend to do it. We gravitate maybe because this proverb uh, is, is what we've always thought, or this one encourages what we're already doing, or this one seems most comfortable for us. Well, if you look hard enough, you can find proverbs that tell us uh, unequivocally that wealth is a blessing. Other proverbs seem very clearly to tell us that wealth can be a curse. Some verses tell us that money protects the one who has it, and others tell us that it comes with trouble. The Proverbs tell us that it's a blessed thing to be able to lend money, but it's always a hardship if you're the one who has to borrow that money that's blessed to lend. The godly man works hard to increase in wealth, but the wise person is wise enough to know when riches aren't worth working for. And so there is such a wide expression in the Proverbs dealing with wealth that it covers all of our issues, all of our hang-ups, all of our emotions concerning all the stuff that we like to have and keep for ourselves. And so we can, if we're not careful, read Proverbs in a way that reveals more of what we think about wealth than what God actually thinks. So we need some place to start. 
We need a guiding principle as we get started today looking at God's wisdom for wealth. And I think we find that in Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruit of all your produce. Now that second line of that verse gives us some pretty specific application that we'll talk about in a little bit. But that first one there, that is the principle. What do I think about my money? What am I supposed to do with my stuff? Should I hoard it? Should I spend it? Should I save it? Should I lend it? What is a believer supposed to do with their money? Honor the Lord with your wealth. Use your money, your possessions, your things to give God his proper place in your life. Actually, this is a principle that we're all, as Presbyterians, and a few visitors, maybe you can, you can get along with this. Uh, as Presbyterians, this is a concept that we're pretty familiar with because the word translated in Proverbs 3, 9 for honor is translated other places as glory. Give glory to God with your wealth. And what's the chief end of man? All right, good. You know your catechism, at least the everybody has to know the first one. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What's the chief end of wealth? It's to help the believer glorify God and enjoy him forever. Where do we have to start? We have to start with honoring God with our wealth. Now, I want to suggest that there are four ways that we can do that from these Proverbs. I want to give you some, uh, some words to, to draw your attention. They all begin with an R. Honoring the Lord with our wealth comes down to how we receive it, how we release it, what we realize about it, and how we rest. Receive and release, realize and rest. These are our catchwords today to help us to honor the Lord with our wealth. Let's start with the first one. We can honor the Lord with our wealth when we receive it with thanksgiving. Receive it with thanksgiving. Take a look at Proverbs 10, verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. And he adds no sorrow with it. Here's the truth, that wealth and abundance come to God's people by God's sovereign blessing. There's a part of Hannah's prayer back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Nobody else can do those things. No one else can raise to new life. Nobody else can give wealth to his people but God alone and his sovereign hand. As we read through the scriptures, we see that very often happening. We see this principle applied through God's people. There was, uh, there was Abraham, and there was uh, Jacob, and there was Joseph, and there was Solomon, and in their own Bronze Age way, they all lived in the lap of luxury. They all lived the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. They had flocks and servants and grain and wine and money, money, money to buy whatever their little hearts desired should they want to. Why did they have those things? They had them because the Lord was pleased to give them and to bless them with them. Their wealth was a gift from God. Now, in our circles, it's, it's not popular to speak this way. That is because when we read God's wisdom or his word concerning wealth, we typically do it as a reaction we do it as a proactive response, again, per, against perhaps uh, the prosperity gospel 
on the one side or against the sins of pride and selfishness and materialism on the other side. And those are both really good things to react against. But don't let those reactions draw you away from the central teaching of the Scripture that those who have wealth have it because the Lord has given it. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. In fact, it is only by recognizing how much of a gift our wealth and our possessions are, that we can effectively push back against those two errors. It is only by recognizing all that we have as God's gift uh, that we can be thankful rather than entitled. Some of us, I think, need to remember that wealth is not something we've created for ourselves. If you were in Sunday school today, uh, Nick stole my thunder, and that's good. And there's going to be a lot of overlap here. Uh, but we need to remember that wealth is not something we create for ourselves. It's easy to forget that because you're a hard worker, aren't you? You're not that sluggard we talked about last week. You're not just lazing about with your hands folded in rest. You go out every day. You give your best energy, your best ideas to somebody else so that they can write a paycheck. And you're the one who goes out and, and you've, you've given yourself of your time and you're a hard worker. You're a wise person. You have listened to good counsel, haven't you? You've made wise choices. You have lived below your means so that you can provide well for your family. If you made investments, you did it slowly. You didn't take any big risks. You built your wealth. You accumulated it little by little. And now you're set. That account is there. That IRA, that 401k, that whatever you have, that, that nest egg that you're just sitting on waiting to hatch it someday. And in the meantime, those paychecks are just coming in. And it's easy to forget that that is not your own doing. If you're in that position, it is dangerously easy to be a lot like Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered. Now there's an interesting statement. Who's he talking to? Who is he? He's answering himself. Here's a prideful man, full of the things of this world. The king was walking, and he answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? You know how it turned out for Nebuchadnezzar. And a voice came from heaven and said, This day it shall be taken from you. It's easy to forget God's sovereignty when we think about all of those choices, all of those opportunities we have grabbed a hold of that others haven't had. Why is it that you are able-bodied and not somebody else? Why is it that some accident, some injustice hasn't robbed you of your ability to go out and earn for yourself for a living? Why is it that your job hasn't been outsourced already? Why is it that you were born here or wherever you were born and not some mud hut village in the middle of a jungle somewhere? Wealth is God's gift. And we need to remember that. You may be a hard worker, but your wealth is not your doing. It's a gift of the Lord, not a result of your own industry. Wealth is a gift. But it is a gift that is not guaranteed to any believer. And that's the other error that we react against. It's the approach that says, not only can God give wealth to his people, but he always does. 100% of the time, those children that the Lord loves, he always blesses them with material wealth. And if you don't have an overflowing bank account, something is spiritually wrong with you. 
maybe you don't believe hard enough. Maybe you don't pray long enough. Maybe you're caught in some unknown, unrepentant sin, and, and the Lord knows it, but you haven't seen it yet. And it's the same kind of faulty reasoning that Job's three very helpful friends use to tell him that you must be some kind of hidden monster, even though you look like a very righteous man. You see, they reverse-engineered this whole process of of, of possessions being God's gift. They said, well, your gifts have been taken away, therefore, you must have done something to deserve those gifts being taken away. If you have no wealth, you must not be cared for by the Lord. You must be in some sin. And this kind of reasoning is another form of entitlement. It's the error that says, Lord, if I follow your ways, I am guaranteed to have more than I could ever imagine. Doesn't it say so right there in Proverbs 3, honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will be bursting with wine. It's a guarantee, but it's not a guarantee. It's a gift. It's a gift. And it's not a gift that every believer is necessarily going to receive. Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. There are poor people who hear the gospel and believe it and stay poor. They're all over the world. Maybe in your own neighborhood, relatively speaking. And if there are believers who are poor and remain poor, they're in pretty good company. Because the Lord himself had no place to lay his head. He depended upon the charity of of rich benefactors, women who paid his way so that he could go around and spread the good news of the gospel of salvation. He depended on somebody else who owned a boat so that he could teach and travel from one side of the sea to the other. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, there's an understatement, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus became literally, materially poor so that all of his children may become unimaginably spiritually wealthy. So that we might receive the riches of a righteousness that is not our own. So we need to get it straight in our minds that material wealth is a gift of God. It's not God's greatest gift. And it's not one that he guarantees to every believer but it is a gift of the Lord. So if you realize today that you are wealthy, let, let's just be honest with ourselves. If you're sitting in this room, by the standards of the vast majority of the world, you are wealthy. If you slept in a bed and not on the floor last night, you are wealthy. If you drove a car that you have access to whenever you want to get to worship today, you are wealthy. If you have enough food to feed your family and you're not worried about where your food each day is going to come from, you are wealthy. So if you realize that that's you in the grand scheme of things, what should you do? How can you honor the Lord with your wealth? It begins by treating it like a gift. And good manners, plain old good manners and etiquette says that when you receive a gift, you say, thank you. It begins with thankfulness. Honor the Lord by receiving this gift with thankfulness, by returning to him and saying, Lord, I, I'll be honest, there's not as much there as maybe I would like there, to, but there's something. Praise the Lord. 
for a card that works most of the time. Praise the Lord for bills that I can pay. When was the last time you paid the bills and prayed a prayer of thanksgiving, not a prayer of, oh, Lord, help me? Sometimes you need to pray both of those. But it begins by receiving with thankfulness what the Lord has given it, because any of our wealth is a gift from Him. Secondly, and this point is, is a lot faster than the first one. You'll be glad to know. I was told there was no coffee this morning in the fellowship time, so uh, I'm hoping controversy will keep you awake, if nothing else. <laughs> so we honor the Lord with our wealth by receiving it with thankfulness. We also honor the Lord with our wealth by releasing it with generosity. By releasing it with generosity. Take a look again at Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Here's the principle that the Lord gives wealth to his people to do more than just provide for their needs. More than even allow them to enjoy some, some luxuries. The Lord gives wealth to his people so that we can be good stewards of the things he has entrusted to us. It's a word we don't use very often. We, we don't have stewards in our society, but the perfect biblical example is Joseph in Potiphar's house. Potiphar didn't concern himself with anything in his household except the food he put into his mouth. Everything else was given over to a man he trusted. Potiphar didn't pay his bills. Potiphar didn't buy his groceries. Potiphar didn't plan renovations and upgrades to his home. He handed them all over to Joseph, and he said, you do what's best for me. Joseph wasn't able to take all that wealth and say, well, you know, put a, a little nest egg away for myself. And Potiphar said, no, 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 that's not stewardship. That's not his job. That's not what he was called to do. He was called to think of Potiphar's aims and goals first and foremost. And so it is with our wealth. Our wealth is a gift from the Lord, but it's a gift with a purpose. And that purpose is to meet the aims and the goals of God in the world. Part of that aim of the Lord in the world is to have hard-working disciples that provide for themselves and provide for their families. There's nothing wrong with providing for your family. In fact, there is a, a moral call. There's something wrong if you don't provide for your family if you're able to. Part of God's aim is that hard-working disciples would provide for themselves and their families, but God also has needs. Not for himself, but for others. He has ministries, he has charities all around us, and he desires to meet those needs and fund those charities and those ministries with the gift that he has given to his people to steward. And so God's children are called to trust the Lord with their, with their wealth so much that they are willing to give to God's causes before they even give to their own. That's what it means when it says, honor the Lord with the first fruits, the best of the best, the very first ripe fig of the summer. We have a blueberry bush in our front yard. It was unexpected to us. It came with the house, and you know, when the berries began to develop, we were waiting for that first one to turn dark, and it was like a celebration when we found one blueberry, and the question was, who gets it? And the question is, who, who gets the first? Who gets the best of the best? Who gets the promise of all the rest of the harvest to come? The first ripe fig and, and the first cluster of grapes from the vine and the first born ram and all the vigor of youth, the cream of the crop. 
Our economy isn't, isn't measured in figs and rams, but it means to give from the first fruits, it means giving to God from your gross rather than from your net. That's the first fruits. I can say this because I don't have any idea what any of you put in the offering. And I like it that way. I don't know what you make. I don't know what you give. You may come in and out of this place years after year and put not a dime in the offering plate. I have no idea. You may be that widow who puts in her last two pennies all she has to live on. But giving to the Lord from our first fruits means making regular, intentional giving part of your worship. It means prioritizing our funds and our finances around your ability to contribute to the church and its work and not vice versa. It means that if we desire to be good, faithful stewards of what the Lord has given us, we need to consider if we're actually willing to trust the Lord enough to make giving to the church a priority in our lives. But then, if we find that we're giving faithfully to God off the top, and we still have some left over after our needs have been met, we provided for our families as we ought to do, and we find that there's some left over, we ought to consider how we can give from the bottom to those who are in need. We read the proverb last week, 21, 26, all day long the sluggard craves and craves, give me more, give me more, give me more. The sluggard craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. What a wonderful thing to be able to bless others from what the Lord has given to us. What a blessing to be part of, of coming to the aid of a brother or a sister in Christ who is in need and bearing with their burdens. What a wonderful thing. There's a difference, folks, between generousness and recklessness. Sometimes wisdom says no, and that's okay. But where the Lord has provided abundance, the righteous gives and does not hold back. And so we honor God with our wealth when we release it with generosity. Receive it with thankfulness. Release it with generosity. And now third, when we realize its limits. We need to realize the limits of wealth. Here is where we need to face up to some of Scripture's warnings about wealth and possessions and material goods. That's part of wisdom, too. Wisdom takes wealth very seriously, very slowly, considering not just what's in our bank accounts, but what's in our hearts. And what's motivating us toward all these things? I, I think there are, uh, there are two warnings for us in Proverbs 23. We'll take them each in part in verses 4 and verse 5. The first warning comes in verse 4. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. What's the warning? What's the limitation of wealth? Well, wealth is addictive. It's addictive. We tend to throw that word around pretty lightly anymore. We, we talk of drug addiction, sure. We also talk of social media addiction and carbohydrate addiction, and that guy over there, he's a workaholic, but wealth can be addictive as well. Maybe it comes from that rush of potential that we get when our pockets are full and our bank account is overflowing, and I can get for myself that thing I've wanted. I still remember my first real paycheck from my first real job. Actually, it, was, it took two paychecks. Well, by the time I got that second paycheck, it, it came to me on a Friday, and by Saturday, I had cashed it and taken it and bought myself a brand new leather jacket. I still have that leather jacket, and it still fits. It was a good investment. <laughs> 
Other paychecks went to more pedestrian uses. I had to pay the car insurance. I had to put gas in my car to get back and forth to work as a 16-year-old kid. I had to do all of these things. Except I learned very quickly that the more money I could make, the more things I could have that I liked. Maybe not just the jacket, but a motorcycle to go with it. That would be good, huh? For some people, that connection, learning that, that the more you make, the more you can have, for some people, that can be a snare. And you know somebody who has graduated from leather jackets uh, to motorcycles to jet skis uh, to summer homes with a cellar full of wine that never gets consumed and a whole host of things that they never even have time to engage in and enjoy because they're so busy trying to get more and more and more and more. You know somebody like that. And the thrill of having and getting and buying can become intoxicating. Eventually, the family suffers. Eventually, the marriage falls apart. Eventually, the, they sacrifice their integrity to the idol of acquisition. And Solomon says, you need to stop. Wealth can be addictive, but you need to recognize that magnetic pull of possessions, and you need to know when enough is enough. You need to be wise enough to know when to desist and wise enough to know what sacrifices are not worth feeding to the addiction of more. Now, our second warning, limitation, comes from the next verse, and I love the wordplay here. Uh, Proverbs 23, verse 5 says, When your eyes light on it, that is wealth. Don't toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Now, of course, lighting is a word that means landing. You know, the bird alighted. It, 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 it came to rest somewhere. And there's this play here that, that those who are addicted to wealth have eyes that are always flying all about. They're looking for the next promotion. They're looking for the next opportunity. They're looking for the next commission. They're looking for the next thing. And finally, when they find something, I want that, and their eyes fix on it, gone. It sprouts wings like an eagle and takes off. Wealth, at best, is incredibly temporary, folks. Oh, money, how can I lose thee? Let me count the ways. <laughs> well, you could lose that job that you worked your whole life to get when your CEO pulls an Enron. And there it goes. Somebody could trip on your front steps and they could shoo the, sue the shirt right off your back. A whole lifetime of investments could go belly up overnight. You could lose it all, the next housing crash or the next Bitcoin bubble or the next great recession. A terrible sickness in your family could eat up your life savings right before your eyes. A once-in-a-lifetime flood could sweep away the house you just paid off and for which you never purchased flood insurance because they told you there's no way it will ever flood there. And we could go on and you know it. The truth of wealth in this life is it is notoriously transient. It's here one day and it's gone the next, especially when you factor in this life full of hardship and surprises and injustice and plain old bad choices. Wealth is temporary at best. But not for everybody, we say. What if you make good choices and things fall out according to the way that you planned and you're able to build and keep that nest egg. You're even able, <clears throat> excuse me, you're even able to give an inheritance to your children. What then? It's still temporary. 
still transient. The field of a certain farmer produced in abundance. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. <laughs> Eat and drink. Be merry. God said to him, fool. Fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Folks, it may be sooner, it may be later, but at some point, a fool and his money will be parted. Maybe through a bad choice or a, a bad turn that you didn't expect. Maybe at the end of your life. We need to remember how temporary riches are. Proverbs 11.4 Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. See, at some point, we're all going to stand in the judgment and all the things of this world will be worthless. And in this life, the rich can sometimes game the system, right? They have a friend and, and they can get their friend who's powerful to pull some strings or they can buy the best lawyers uh, that money can get them. They can somehow finance their way to freedom, but when your soul is required of you. All the wealth of this world is a currency that has absolutely no value. The only thing that has any value is, is the righteousness of Christ given to you, imputed to your account, the Savior who came to pay the debt that you owe and to give you of his riches, the one who came to be made poor so that you may become rich. Righteousness saves from death, but riches Oh, they're temporary at best. And then one more warning. We've seen that wealth is uh, temporary. We have seen that wealth was something else. We see also, excuse me, that wealth can be a cruel master. Wealth can be a cruel master. We find this warning in chapter 22, verse 7. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is slave of the lender. This is how the world works, doesn't it? Not a whole lot has changed in a few thousand years. Those who have tend to be uh, in a place of power above those who have not. Thank you, John. And you've seen it happen that the CEOs get to call the shots while the hourly workers take what they can get. And all things being equal, it's better to be on top of the food chain than on the bottom of the food chain. And this, is, this is just a bare observation. The rich rules over the poor. But what do you do when calamity strikes? What do you do when your riches grow wings and they fly away and you're left with a need that you can't meet? Well, you could take a loan. You could put it on your MasterCard. There's, there's an option there. Debt is an option. And sometimes it's understandable. We've all been underwater from time to time. In the middle of the winter, sometimes uh, the furnace dies and you don't have money to keep the heat on. Sometimes your car lets you down for the very last time and you still have to get to work and sometimes a quick loan paid off uh, quickly can, can be a real lifesaver. But 
The Bible is very clear that if you take that option, you had better be prepared for the bondage that comes with it because debt is slavery. Pain and simple, plain and simple, or pain and simple perhaps. Debt is slavery. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is slave of the lender. Well, there's no shame, there's, there's no sin in needing a little bit of help, but you need to know what you're getting yourself into. Far worse, though, is the habit of taking on debt, not for the necessities, but for our luxuries. Not for things that we need, but just for the things that we want. I've got that Civic, and it, it runs okay, but, you know, have you seen the new Tesla yet? I don't need it, but, boy, I want it. And taking on debt for our luxuries. Sinclair Ferguson tells the story of the first major credit, call, credit card to come to Scotland. Uh, the card was called Access. And he said that their tagline when it came on the market was, Access takes the waiting out of wanting. Isn't that how it works? Access takes the waiting out of wanting. And that's the debt that rules the world in our age. It's the debt of easy acquisition. It's debt that makes all the things that we want more desirable and more attainable. In the words of Dave Ramsey, sometimes it's spending money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like. <laughs> and America is drowning in it. At the turn of the new year into 2019, American consumer debt passed a threshold previously unimaginable. For the first time in 2019, American consumer, this isn't the national debt, this isn't uh, corporate debt, these aren't business loans, this is, uh, this is uh, mortgage payments and car loans and student debt and credit cards. It passed the mark of $4 trillion. That is a four with 12 zeros behind it. And as of May of this year, that means $4 trillion, $44 billion worth of slavery for every man, woman, child, and infant in the country. If you're doing the math, that's just over $12,000 apiece. And since banks don't typically lend to toddlers, you can imagine that those that actually have the, the debt uh, are far in excess of $12,000. Now, at the risk extreme risk of sounding like a man who is trying to justify a recent house purchase. <laughs> and that's okay, you can psychoanalyze all you want. <laughs> At the risk of sounding like someone who is trying to justify a recent house purchase, I do believe that sometimes debt can be sensible. It's never ideal, and it's always slavery, but there are circumstances where within a larger picture, the, the cost, the restrictions involved in debt may make some kind of sense. A business owner may decide that a larger delivery truck is worth financing and paying off quickly so that they can expand the range of their business so that they can provide for their family. Maybe. It's a wisdom issue, not a sin issue. A husband and a wife may decide together that rentals in the Boston metro are so exorbitantly expensive that actually a, a low interest mortgage makes a lot of sense. And it's a wisdom issue, not a sin issue, and it might be uh, the time at which it's advisable. But even when debt makes sense, it still holds the debtor in shackles. Make no mistake, debt 
is slavery. Until the last penny is paid, the pursuit of more wealth and greater possessions can be a cruel master. And so, folks, if we want to honor the Lord with our wealth, we need to receive it thankfully. We need to release it with generosity. We need to realize its limitations. But there is one more key in Proverbs to dealing with our possessions, and that is to rest in God's provision. To rest in God's provision. We find that promise right in the middle. Proverbs 15, verse 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Now here we are talking about what to do with our finances. Talking about how to order our lives and our financial decisions around giving to the Lord and, and giving to others and, and discussing going in, uh, avoiding debt that we don't need. We're talking about all of these do's and these don'ts of honoring the Lord with our money, but it really all comes down to the question of whether or not you believe that verse. Do you really believe that a little with the fear of the Lord is way better than a whole lot with trouble? And maybe you're saying, well, I don't have the fear of the Lord, but I don't have trouble. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, you've got more troubles than you can know. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. You see, folks, we could study economics for the rest of our lives. We could memorize the amortization table of our mortgages. We could know the exact ratio of principal to interest of every credit card and every loan that has ever been issued to us. We could agonize how to squeeze every last drop out of our investments and our retirement accounts. But in the end, whether we deal with wealth wisely does not come down to spreadsheets and policy. It comes down to faith. It comes down to whether we are going to listen to the message that the world is screaming in our ears every day and every night that unless you've got an increasingly greater amount of things, you're somehow missing out. It comes down to whether we, we look longingly across our neighbor's property and we think, life would be great with a deck. Man. I bet he's so much happier because he and his family can, I, I need that deck. I wonder what it would cost to build one like, I wonder what it would cost to build one bigger than that one. <laughs> Is that what it comes down to? It comes down to whether we imagine, contrary to every single study that has ever been published, that our happiness will increase as our salary increases comes down to whether we trust that the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who sent his son to pay the sin debt for all his elect, whether we believe that he's actually going to care for us in the best way, and even if his timetable doesn't match ours. It comes down to whether we actually believe that the destitute Christian living in some fourth world country somewhere with not a penny to their name, and yet indwelt by the Holy Spirit, it comes down to whether we really believe that they are far richer as an heir of the eternal kingdom of Christ than the most affluent atheist the world has ever seen. Do we really believe that? It comes down to whether we believe that it's actually better to live our lives by God's wisdom that comes through the fear of the Lord, or if we think we know better than He does, 
and we can work harder than he has, even though he's promised to supply all our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's what it comes down to. Because if, it, if that is what we believe, then everything else falls into place. Suddenly our wealth is, is not something that we look at as the creation of our own hands, but it's something that we can be thankful for. It's something that we can hold on to loosely. We can give it away as the Lord enables us. We can, we can avoid the siren calls of riches that tempt us to give up everything else to pursue wealth and to find our safety and our values in it and in its fleeting embrace. If we really believe this, then we can rest in what the Lord has provided. We can make our money glorify God rather than satisfying ourselves because that's what wise Christians do. Wise believers make their money glorify God. Won't you pray with me? Well, gracious Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom. Wisdom not only to be hearers and so deceive ourselves, but wisdom to be doers as well. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would glorify yourself among us as you teach us and lead us even today. Help us to make wise decisions with our wealth, collectively and individually. Help us, O oh Lord, to see as you lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.